IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about our favorite albums of 2001. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the groom still waiting at the altar, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I don't know what you're referring to in that introduction. You know, I like to keep my... Pro- it's a Bob Dylan reference. Oh. <laughs> Hello? Come on, man. This is my version of like this is my version of you like making an obscure Simpsons joke <laughs> and me not getting it. I'm dropping a Bob Dylan reference on you. Uh, also, though, it's a reference to you yes. getting married. Yes. We should say at the, at, at the top of the episode that this is a banked episode. Yes. We recorded this... A week ago, it'll be a week ago by the time this posts, because Ian, you got married, it would be the Sunday, like the previous Sunday from when we are posting this. Yeah. And it's very confusing when you do the <laughs> banked episode, because the time-space continuum is broken, but by the time this posts, you will be a husband. Yes. And congratulations Thank to you, you uh, uh, in advance, uh, very happy for you, <laughs> uh, and you'll... Will you be back from your honeymoon by the time this posts, or will you still be out? I think I'll with, be with like your, just. Bride? I think I'll just be pulling in. So um, okay, yeah, pulling I, in back home or pulling into your pull, honeymoon. Pull, pulling pulling in back home. So I'm gonna be okay. off the grid for the next week. So I mean, I. I know there's like just kind of this cliche of, you know, if you're a guy, make sure you don't like book your wedding on a Sunday in the fall because everyone's going to be watching football. And, you know, like I live in San Diego. That's definitely not going to happen here. But, um, you know, if you want to know IndieCast's dedication to craft, like as we started to look at our episodes, you know, for the next month or so, I started to realize like, oh, shit, my wedding was booked on the week of the Coldplay album. Like that that's is right. that is like booking a wedding on the Super Bowl in the uh, universe of IndieCast. So that's why we did Coldplay last yes. week. We were talking about that in advance, and that's why we're doing an evergreen topic uh-huh. uh, for this episode. And I have to say, I'm a little concerned. Oh. You know, I'm mainly happy that you're getting married. Okay, cool. I mean, that's that's a beautiful occasion, but <laughs> I'm also a little worried about all the discourse that we're going to be missing. Oh, yes. While you're uh while you're off gallivanting with your new bride that you know, what if say uh, uh Lana Del Rey and St. Vincent make a record together about uh I don't know, uh uh the opioid crisis or something. Uh, you know, what if, what if something like that happens? Uh or some other great event occurs and we're not going to be able to talk about it oh god you know that we were just leaving the lane wide open for other you know upstart podcasts to hash out trends i mean oh man endless scrolls out there licking their chops right now because this it's like a weak moment for us i know it's like this is that's the thing man like you know po- indycast for once prioritized family friends and love over the discourse and you know look where it got us usurped but um, exactly. It could, there could be like a Mitski fan revolt. Oh, God, this week. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just trying to think of like other worst case scenarios for discourse that we could be missing. Well, I, uh, I've possibilities no- are endless. I've noticed that already today. This is Friday the eighth. That uh, the world is was not included on seven albums you should listen to today on Pitchfork. So they might get foxing. So if that happens on my week off, actually that's probably better if it happens when I'm like completely off the internet. So. Um, I, I would hate for us to have to do like an emergency 
what do you think about the fact that like this album that you love got absolutely shat on? But see, th- th- that that's gonna be like that part in Superman two where he marries <laughs> Lois Lane, uh-huh. and then the world goes to hell, and everyone's like, "Where's Superman?" <laughs> and he's off, you know, hanging out with uh, Lois Lane in the uh, Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, and uh, that's what the world's gonna be like if somehow the world is like maybe they get like a 6.1 or something from pitchfork <laughs> um falling below the peppa pig perimeter yes people are gonna be like where's ian we need ian to <laughs> speak for us you'll be gone it's like and it's like look the guy has a personal life he has to tend to that he can't always be there for the discourse so ho- hoping for a slow week yeah. hopefully we didn't miss anything yeah or else this whole conversation will seem horribly ironic to our listeners they'll be like oh all these things happened that they're not talking about uh so anyway (laughs) again congratulations to you we're all happy for you we're all gonna want to know what you played at your wedding (laughs) when you when you get back uh all the indie rock hits that you spun at your reception we're all dying to hear about that um but uh for now, I guess we should go to our mailbag segment. Let's go to our mailbag. We are still, you know, as as long as like I'm on the clock, we got we we got to acknowledge the IndieCast fans who are going to continue to support us and ask for the yeah. discourse with right. me out for the week. So let's let let's 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 tend to our flock, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So again, if you want to write to us, we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail.com. You can also find us at indiecast one on Twitter. Uh, also, look, if you like the show, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, it always helps the show if you leave a review. Uh, definitely give us five stars. Yes. Five stars are bust. Uh, that, that really helps us. Every time uh, we get a review, Ian uh, will be able to lavish his wife with another fur coat. Yeah. So We love fur and, coats and, and, here in San Diego. And I can't exactly. You know, I was just thinking that, you know, since now we're both going to be married men that like this could be a, a bit on our show now like where we just oh, complain Lord. about our wives like do, do take my wife please jokes yeah we're getting for the- we're getting real borscht belt with it in 2022 <laughs> that's the thing you know is we we've just like upped our age demographic by 10 years so we're just going to talk about like that and i'm going to come back all of a sudden like able to understand all of your bob dylan references exactly well i think I, i'm just envisioning this show being like according to jim like a show like that where Instead of one schlubby guy, there's two schlubby guys, and and they're married to like beautiful wives. Yeah. But then in this scenario, like there'd be two Jim Belushi's, and they both host the indie <laughs> rock podcast. Uh, I want to work that in because that seems to be a very commercial formula. Maybe we can take this yeah. show to the next level uh, w- with that sort of thing. The podcast to dad sitcom pipeline. It's a real thing. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, do you want to read this question? I'm going yeah. to offer it to you again. All right. Well, so uh, this question comes to us from Max from Los Angeles. Not your typical IndieCast town, but nonetheless, I lived there for 10 some odd years. So it's, yeah. good, it, it's good to know that we've hit the coastal elites. Uh, SoCal. Yes. SoCal, baby. All right. So dear Stephen Ian, I'm dealing with a serious dilemma, one that can only be solved by the host of the premier indie rock podcast. I just want to take Thank a break. You. All, ev- all y'all out there this week, this is the premier indie rock in. Indie I mean, is that even yet. a compliment at this point, yeah. <laughs> or is he just stating a fact? Yeah. I think that's just a statement of fact yes. at this point. But anyway, thank you, Max. All right. So two tours I really want to see are unfortunately playing in my city on the exact same night. So in what feels like a question made for IndieCast, should I get tickets to see The War on Drugs 
or the Foxing slash Manchester Orchestra show when they are both in Los Angeles. For the record, it would be my first time seeing any of these acts live. If you could please hold an impromptu recommendation corner to state your case, offering the pros of seeing both live shows and help me make a decision, I would greatly appreciate it. Max wow. from Los Angeles. Yeah, this one. Wow. I don't even. I, this is like a psyops, man. Like I don't even. I was gonna say, is Max real or is this like an IndieCast bot? Because <laughs> this seems like a very specifically. Are these two bands even playing the on the same night? Or now nah, they they I are. Know. I looked it up. They are okay. So sorry, Max. You're for real. Okay. We're just saying this is very specifically tailored to us. Um, I gotta say that I feel like he's setting up a scenario that seems like it has a clear cut division between you and I, mm-hmm. but because I'm a well known war on drugs head, but I I probably like Manchester Orchestra even more than you. Mm. I think that's fair to say. I mean, because I think you've come around to them. I've recently. come around. But I've been more of a booster of them over the years, or at least in the last like five years or so, mm. when I've really gotten into them and kind of gone back. So it is a hard choice for me as well. But I'm curious. I don't know if you want to dive into this first. Yeah. Because I, I, it is a clear-cut choice for you. Like, you would go with Manchester and Foxing, right? Here, Here's the thing. Um, you have to consider, like, I, I love the fact this question's from Los Angeles because this gives me a bit more insight as to which one I would choose because, like, the venue really matters because, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, you have to take a lot of things into consideration, like parking, where it is, what kind of crowd you're going to get. So... Uh, the War on Drugs is playing at the Shrine Expo Hall. Now, not the best part of the city. Last time I went to the Shrine Expo... No, sorry. This is at the Shrine Auditorium. The Shrine Expo Hall is the single worst venue in Los Angeles. Like, But that's another story. But the Shrine Auditorium, last time I was there, I saw uh, American football open for churches and got an entire beer spilled on me by some USC frat guy who was just like, oh, sorry, dude. So that's the audience that you're probably going to get at the Shrine Auditorium in L.A. Um, and also, you know, War on Drugs. So what, why is, is it by the university? Or like, why yeah, is it's that, right on uh, the USC campus, I believe. Okay, so a lot of bros. Yeah, and also, I like War on Drugs too, but you consider a Los Angeles War on Drugs crowd. And um, I, I just imagine, especially since it's a seated show and indoors, like I think like I'm surprised they're not playing the Greek theater, or the Hollywood Bowl somewhere outdoors. Um, I imagine you're going to get a lot of talking uh, from the audience. That's just something I know as a, lo- a guy who's seen a lot of shows in Los Angeles. Now, oh. on the other hand. This is the if you're going to see the war on drugs in Los Angeles, that's the time to do it because they're not playing any they're not playing Orange County or San Diego. They're actually going to Finland the next time the next show and you might have to see them at a festival in 2022. I imagine they're going to be a major player on there. So can I, can I just say I think it's amazing that they're playing that one show in LA. Here in Minneapolis, actually it's in St. Paul, they're playing two shows here. At a at a venue, and maybe that's because I live here, because they feel like we'll, <laughs> we'll pay homage to Steve. We'll do two shows in his backyard. I mean, how big is the Shrine Auditorium? Is that like five thousand um, capacity? I'll, I I don't know offhand, but I can just tell you the last time I was there, it's uh, sixty three hundred. It looks like I think. Okay, that makes sense because the venue they're playing here. Uh, over the course of two shows, it'd be about 6,000 people. Yeah. So, would, would they be seeing them. So, so I think that's what it is. But yeah, I mean, like, also, mind you, last time I was there, churches played. Um, and also, this might just mean, like, a radius clause thing because they're coming back to California 
later that year to do like Coachella or something like that. So maybe that's the deal. Also, if they are indeed playing Coachella, then you could probably see him at like Pappy and Harriet's or one of those uh, shows in between the two Coachella weekends. On the other man, we're, hand, we're, this is a deep dive into LA venues. Well, here. I'm, Max, I'm Max a needs lot. to know, man. This is this is my area of expertise. <laughs> I love it. As far as Manchester Orchestra and Foxing, now they're playing at the Palladium, great venue. That's where they did like the Joyce Manor Tigers Jaw turnover shows. Um, and if you're going to see Manchester Orchestra, you're getting a Manchester Orchestra crowd. Like they are there to see Manchester Orchestra, not because, you know, they kind of dabble in indie rock and, you know, the War on Drugs just happens to be like one of the biggest bands going. Here's what I got to qualify though. Foxing is not a co-headliner. They are an opening act. And so you're going to see like them play eight to 10 songs, all of which are like the most popular. Now they are, for my money, the best live band in indie rock uh, as far as like playing, you know, thousand cap, 500 cap type shows. Um, Maybe they come around on a headlining tour. I think that's sweetener though for this show as opposed to, no, this is my only chance to see Foxing. Um, also you have the option of coming down the next night to San Diego to see that show at the observatory, which is my favorite venue in the city. So Max, if you're looking to make the drive, I would say do both. If you had to choose one, like I would probably, I would still go with Manchester Orchestra. I'd still go with Manchester Orchestra and Foxing only because I think that you would have a chance to see we're on drugs, uh, later on, maybe at a more, a venue more amenable to what they do. Now, that is such a thorough answer. I don't even know how much I need to add, except to be the, uh, I guess, the obligatory war on drugs booster, Mm. which I will do. But I'll just say before I say that, and just to circle back to something I said a few minutes ago, that I am a big Manchester Orchestra fan. um, And I think, you know, they're a great live band. The fact that Foxing is opening for them obviously gives that show an edge if you just want to go purely by like two great bands versus one. I guess we don't know who's opening on the War on Drugs tour. I uh, actually tried to look this yeah, up and I didn't see any information on that. So maybe that'd be a tiebreaker. Maybe uh, they get the strokes to open for them just like the Red Hot Chili Peppers did. Not that that would actually happen, but I'm just saying maybe there'd be a great band opening for the War on Drugs. Uh, but yeah, I mean... The double bill aspect of the Manchester show makes that really hard to turn down. The case I would make for the War on Drugs is that, A, I think that they've become a really great live band. I mean, this is a band that I've seen evolve over the course of about a decade, uh, where you know different people have come into the band, they've become more seasoned. I mean, they've really gone from a band that was Adam's project mm-hmm. to like a real live rock and roll band that always puts on great shows. I have a feeling that uh, they're going to be leveling up on this tour with lights Mm. and production, so it's going to be something really cool to look at. And I would just say that uh, their catalog at this point is really strong, and they're going to have a great body of work to draw from. And it just makes me think that this might be like the best tour to see them, Yeah, you know? I, I hope that they're around for a long time and they, they keep putting out great records, but like this is sort of like their like, you know, Springsteen around the time of Born in the USA era, you know, like where they've been around for a long time. They've got a lot of great albums to draw from. They're at a high and it may not get any better than this. So that would be the case I'd make for them. But look, I think what Ian said about the San Diego option is uh, a great, workaround for this issue 
see the war on drugs in LA, then drive down to San Diego to mm-hmm. see Manchester and Foxing. Ian will escort you personally to the show. Can we <laughs> promise that? Yeah. That you'll be there and you, you'll, you'll hang out with Max at the show. Yeah. Uh, maybe you, you could probably get on a guest list. <laughs> This put a Max lot of your plus one. A lot of pressure on me. Like, you know, I, I, I do I, I do happen to have uh, someone. Saying. Look, I have someone, you know, happens to live with me who was, you know, very much into, uh, you know, Manchester Orchestra. So, I mean, let's keep in Maybe. mind that, like, Max, I love the fact you're writing in. I don't think you've, like, I, I, I don't think you have top priority right now if I do happen to have a guest list for uh, Manchester, the Manchester Workshop okay. Boxing Show. Sorry, dude. So he's going to take his wife. See, he's already changed. Yeah. He's a married man now. He's now taking his wife to a show instead of the fans that, no, of the show. That's bullshit, Turning man. He's back our, on the fans. I, I just want to point out, our second date was a Curse of Mineral show. So Wow. Uh, yeah, th- that, this is she, she's been ride or die since the beginning. Also, this is true love. This yeah. is true love right she here. She also when I when I saw the uh, farewell me without you show, she asked for me to get her a t-shirt which she still currently owns. So Oh my god. Yeah, they they well, okay. they these people exist for real. She's a real person. All right. Well, <laughs> that's beautiful. Hi Micah. <laughs> a true IndieCast love story. I love to hear it. Yes. Um well, let's get into the meat of our episode because we have a lot to talk about. We do. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the albums of 2001, and uh, of course, we're talking about this because it was 20 years ago, it so was. it's a nice round number to look back on a year, and also because we need an evergreen topic, so it it, it really checks the boxes for this show uh, that we're doing here on our special Banked Up uh, episode. Um, just uh, a little bit of a setting the scene here. Uh, the number one album uh, on the Paz and Jop poll for the Village Voice in 2001. Can we explain like what Paz and Jop is to people who are under the age of 30 who are listening to us? For, for the folks at home? Yeah. Yes. Paz and Jop used to be a survey of music critics uh, asking them for the their favorite albums of the year and their favorite singles of the year. And it was considered to be the most comprehensive uh look at critical consensus for a particular year. Like they would get a thousand critics or 1500 yeah. critics from all over the country. Yeah. Pre Twitter, uh, by the way, this was like how the discourse pre Twitter, pre Metacritic pre, well, there's no Rotten Tomatoes for music, but you know, before mm. there was a, an easy way to look at consensus, this was the way to get the snapshot of what people thought was the best in a particular year. Mm -hmm. The number one album, according to critics that year, Love and Theft by Bob Dylan, (laughs) uh, followed by uh, Is This It by The Strokes, and Bjork's Vespertine at number three, White Blood Cells, number four, Amnesia. Get to number six. Get to number six. Uh, Ryan Adams Gold at number six, Above the Blueprint. Oh, yeah. By Jay-Z, number seven. Um, Lucinda yeah, Williams, Rufus Wainwright, man, like th- it's kind of crazy, like going down the list because, like, and we'll, we're going to talk about this album, I'm sure, later on in the episode. But Daft Punk's Discovery, which I think a lot of people would now say is one of the landmark mm-hmm. albums of that year, at number twenty-five. Yeah, uh, behind uh, New Orders Get Ready, <laughs> the, the, their comeback record, which has an amazing uh, lead single, Crystal. I love that song. Yeah, and a. Uh, and, uh, the rest of the album's not very no. good, but like that that single is really Rock good. Rock the Shack, also, oh my god! Like we could, uh, 
I think we talked about this before, but like the Killers got their name from that music video Indeed. because the, mu- the uh, I think it's the name on the drum head of like a band. Yeah, they're the fictional the band, band in the Crystal that. video. And uh, the first Killers record kind of sounds like Crystal, yeah. so it was a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, and uh, yeah, like the Shins, O Inverted World, that's at number thirty five. Mm. Uh, <laughs> right after Spiritualizes, Let It Come Down, and and right before Black Rebel Rebel Motorcycle Clubs, BRMC. Oh yeah. Which um, I remember liking that record. I feel like that'd probably be a fun record to put on. Yeah, it's kind of an IndyCast Hall of Fame candidate. Oh, totally. It's like a. It's kind of funny because, like, I remember, like, I hate to bring this up again, but it's like if if I like the more it, the new Ice Age album, kind of sounds like that. Yeah, but like a way less catchy version. Yeah, I feel like that record is like not a, not a bad thing to shoot for, though. By the way, no, not at all, yeah. not at all. Shout shout to BRMRC. Like, that kind of like gloomy, a little bit of Jesus and Mary Chain mm. type rock. Yes. I, I'm always a sucker for that. Um, the best selling album of 2001, Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park, mm. which is actually a 2000 album that came out in October of 2000. Oh, yeah. Which I know because I wrote about it in my book, This Isn't Happening. Available at fine booksellers <laughs> everywhere. That album came out the same month as Kid A. It did. I think it was three weeks after Kid A. Um, the second best-selling album also came out in 2000, Shaggy's Hot Shot. Huh. Yeah. And it was like right below Hybrid Theory, apparently. I think Hybrid Theory sold about $4.8 million, and Shaggy sold $4.5 million. Huh. Talk about, like, uh, I mean, where, where are all the Shaggy, uh, like, retrospectives? God. Anyone, anyone do a retrospective about Hot Shot last year? I, th- I think people, look, man, if I'm going to do one, it's going to be on Boombastic. Like, that, I, I am a Boombastic truther as far as Shaggy is concerned. Remember that song, Angel? Of course. Where he samples Angel of the Morning? Of course. <laughs> sure. Oh, you lost man. me on Angel of the Morning. That's the, um, I think that's Juice Newton. That is Juice Newton. Yeah, yeah. So we like, <laughs> I like to, we like to educate yeah. our listeners here. Uh, noted indie rocker Juice Newton. Yes. Um, so instead of just kind of uh, doing like a list of our favorite albums, uh, we thought it'd be interesting to do different categories mm-hmm. for, for this. Uh, so we can really dig into the meat of this year and maybe get to records that aren't talked about as much. Yeah. Like Shaggy's Hot Shot. <laughs> Um, our first category is 2001 album you loved then and don't care about now. Mm. So, you know, last week we talked about revisionism Mm -hmm. on Pitchfork, you know, people looking at opinions from 20 years ago and being like, "Ah, I don't really agree with that anymore. Mm. We're doing this for ourselves. Like like, what what was the record you remember loving in 2001 that you never would put on now and probably don't even think about this was a tough like this was a tough one to answer because i when when i think about like how i engaged with music in 2001 it was like i was a college kid who liked to get drunk and listen to whatever was on the radio and that felt like so much more authentic than what it does now i'd be it would be so much easier to answer this question if we were doing a 2011 episode but um like look i don't put as much weight on say ours distorted lullabies as i used to um I but you know with a record like that, which is you know clearly like a hack job, clearly like a Radiohead ripoff, you know in a similar way that like Parachutes is, I can still like engage with that album in a sense of nostalgia. Like 
to the point where I sort of wish someone would just point me in the direction of the 2021 hours and say, here, here, here is what it is. Give this a little more attention than you otherwise would because you're going to love this thing in a junk food sort of way. Well, didn't you put that in the IndyCast Hall of Fame? I did. Is- so yeah, so yeah, that doesn't that that would never that would not apply then to this category. But I would otherwise be tempted to say something like the blueprint or you know avalanches since I left you, which you know I it, it, that came out in America in two thousand oh, in two thousand one. Also, like I mean, I, we have to bring up the fact that people are like, yeah, it's the twentieth anniversary of is this it when like they're celebrating the Australian release or something. But you know, like with those albums, it's like they're so canonized and. I have to ask, like, can I get anything out of these albums anymore? And the answer is absolutely. Like, I play them maybe once a year, and they're still awesome. Yeah, I think the blueprint, yeah, especially, it's awesome. Is like, but um, yeah, that holds up. The one, the one that uh, came up to me now. This was, tr- th- I would have said the exact same thing in 2018 or 19. You know, before all the stuff, the controversy happened. Look, I, I want to reiterate, I was a drunken college kid in his last year, and. Uh, given that lifestyle I was living, like I thought Ryan Adams gold was just such a profound ass album. Right. Uh, it's like, this, yeah, man, this is like our Van Morrison and our Bob Dylan and such and such. And like, you know, even in the ensuing years, I could put it on when fall hits and you know, live through 35 minutes of nostalgia. Cause even when I was 21, I knew like half that album was like complete garbage, but now it's like I I can't even get much out of La Cienega just smiled. Um, I, I it, it, whatever whatever flickers of nostalgia or warmth I have for that album, which you know were significant for a while, uh, I just don't feel anymore. So I'm really surprised that it was at number six on the peasant job. Are you surprised? Like, li- I, yeah, I am. I mean, and maybe that's just because I forget how much New York uh, New York got the 9/11 boost. Well, I just critical consensus has changed because I feel like a record like that would never be that lauded in 2021. You know, like I like you said, it's a very retro classic rock pastiche yeah. type record. Um, but it shows that at that time, yeah, there were a lot of critics that were into that sort of thing. Yeah, much less so now. <laughs> uh, that, that would be the case, and that's again just separate from all the allegations against him, but just the kind of artist he is. I mean, that has to be the most acclaimed record of his career, maybe even more than Heartbreaker. I mean, I feel like in a way that record benefited from Heartbreaker because yeah. people probably were late to the to the party with that. So then they compensated with Gold, which is like a much weaker record mm-hmm. overall. Um, my choice is an album that when I put myself back in 2001, this was maybe my most anticipated album of 2001 mm. uh, because this was a band that was – popular in the 90s and then they went away Mm -hmm. for a long time like five years and there was this mythology that built up around them where they became this really cool band that was considered to be an influence on a generation certainly of like emo and punk bands Mm -hmm. and it was assumed for a long time that they would never make another record and then they made a record and it's a record that i still like i mean i think it's okay um but i have no urge to listen to it at all. And the disparity, again, between my anticipation for it in 2001 and my feelings about it in 2021, about this album and the band in general, um, it's pretty wide. Um, and, of course, I'm talking about the Green Album by Weezer. Uh, yeah. uh, again, I think 
this I feel like this has been lost a little bit because Weezer has been pretty prolific mm. in the last 20 years, but there was that five-year gap between Pinkerton and the Green Album where, you know, Rivers Cuomo was in his wilderness period mm. going to Harvard. I think he had surgery on his leg to ex- so it would be as long as his other leg. I don't know which leg he had operated on, mm. um, but... There was so much excitement for the record. And I think at the time, people felt a little disappointed hmm. by it because it did seem like the band operating on autopilot. Of course, in retrospect, this is one of the best albums that they've put out <laughs> in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, it would actually get a whole lot worse than the Green Album, I hmm. think. Um, although Maladroit, I like more than the Green yeah. Album. I think that's actually... That's a, the amnesiac. Yes, that's a really good record. And that's a direction I always wish they had gone in, more of a hard rock direction mm-hmm. um so yeah but yeah it's the green album for me i think would be the one that i loved in 2001 and now i don't really care about i i i cannot think of a record that i liked and then immediately turned on more quickly than that one like and you know it's like a 25 minute album which you know back in the cd buying era was a real anomaly and uh you know it's like an album meant to be appreciate it immediately because you know the the guitar solos famously mimic the vocal melodies at like every single song and it's like yeah man this is weezer's back i mean granted i love pinkerton but yeah it's like oh they're gonna be back and they're gonna be a commercial force and then i listen to it a second time like god this this album actually sucks dude (laughs) like i it was a it was a re- it was a real turning point for me as as a weezer fan or as someone who identified themselves like at, you know, with that whole thing I mean that's I've not listened to it in ages I feel like it's the sort of album where I can probably remember what they sound like 20 years after the fact and like I just don't know what I'm supposed to get out of this and I do appreciate the fact that like Rivers Cuomo has pointed out like just how mercenary that album really was I think there's an honesty in that that's informed everything they've done in the time since yeah it's it's honesty and also Craven at the same time, you yeah. know, which, uh, yeah, it, it, as it is, it's always a mixed bag with that band. Um, let's move on to our next category. This is 2001 album you didn't care about back then, but you love now. So the inverse of our previous so album mm. that maybe we didn't like then or didn't even know about, and now we really love it in retrospect. What's your mm. choice? All right, so like kind of a secret shame or not so secret shame, you know, I probably mentioned this on Twitter, but um, despite the music that I listen to, uh, you know, emo, post-hardcore, etc., I'm like not that well versed in Fugazi. Um, I'm kind of agnostic on them. Like, I mean, for, I am too. For many, I'll, I'll say that. I'll, I'll join the chorus on that. I, I respect them, but I've, yes. I, I, I haven't. I've never had like a strong connection to Fugazi, really. No, and I think a lot of it. You know, comes down to the fact, um, you know, when you when when we talk about my favorite album of that year, like I've all I've always saw them as being a band that's like overly serious and a band that you're supposed to respect so much more than like enjoy. Um, and there was always something like kind of intimidating about them. Um, and I would you know kind of listen to their you know older albums and think, well, I wish they were kind of catchier or you know maybe less stone faced or whatever. Um, maybe I just needed to be there at the time. That's fine. But, um, the argument is their last album. It's the one that their final album came out in 2001. And I always see it on 2001 year end lists or, 
decade retrospectives and i would just hear it's like nah man like if you look for your for your taste this is the fugazi album it's kind of spookier it's more melodic the production's incredible the drumming is just fucking insane they have two drummers on some songs and you know what like they were right about that one the argument is just a like not only just like an incredible album but like an incredible last album i think that in the same way that like a moon-shaped pool kind of is where it just kind of closes the chapter on Fugazi. Um, and yeah, there's just, I got to say, cash out before it gets loud. It sounds like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I swear to you, if you play that song for someone who's never heard Fugazi, they probably think it's Anthony Kiedis. I mean that as a compliment. Oh, you know, man. Both, bands, both bands were drawing from Gang of Four. Th- like, let's just say what it is. Uh, Strange Light, also maybe my favorite Fugazi song. Um, I've still not done the really committed deep dive. Um, you know, I've dabbled in, you know, the big Fugazi albums, but like, this is the one that, um, you know, now I can say like, God, man, I sort of wish I was a Fugazi person back when they were like an active concern. It's a good thing that you are on, uh, your honeymoon this week, because I think the heads of like a million Fugazi fans has exploded when you compare them to how Chili Peppers. Like I, I, I think it was just, it was like a scanner situation, just simultaneous uh, <laughs> combustion. Um, I think you make a good point about Fugazi that there's something about that band where the way that people talk about them, it just makes them seem a lot less fun than I think that the the than I think that the that the music is. You know, because people always talk about them in sort of moralistic terms that they were this ethical band charge five dollars for a ticket uh you know and ian mckay if you just look at a photo of him he looks like kind of a severe figure you know doesn't look like he's gonna party all that much in his life straight edge dude um but i think they are if you can get past the moralizing of some of their fans they actually are like a really uh i mean they're a great band but they're also a fun band there's like a lot of things in their music that are you could just enjoy as just like great rock music. Um, I'm going to do two choices in this category and and it's two albums that could not be any more different. Uh, the first album is toxicity by system of a down. Uh, when this album came out, you know, I, I'm sure I would have associated with like the new metal that was going on at the time and new metal in general was not a genre. I appreciated in the moment. It wasn't until like years later that I came to, appreciate a lot of like the the really great bands from that scene um but at the time it was so ubiquitous and uh that you couldn't turn on the radio without hearing a million new metal bands and it was just annoying in the moment um but i remember like in the early 2010s i bought an exercise bike and (laughs) system of a down was the exercise bike band of choice it was toxicity and it was also the self-titled record the one with the big hand on the cover ah yes um both of those records were my go-to exercise bike bands and i just came to appreciate uh you know just the insanity of that band and the innovation of that band and just like how man like there's no band that sounds like this you know even in Mm. new metal they were so unique and uh so much energy so much physicality that it really was a band that I had to be physical myself in the process of listening to it in order to appreciate it. Once I got to mm-hmm. that point, I really came to uh, love that record. So there's Toxicity. And then on the other end of the spectrum, 
John Mayer's Room for Squares, which oh, yeah. is a record that in the moment I would have scoffed at, looked at John Mayer as a pretty boy, looked at these as like wimpy soft rock songs. And look, they are wimpy soft rock <laughs> songs. But um, John Mayer in general, like his aughts era output, um, I've really come around on. And I've talked about this, I think on this show, and I've written about it. I won't go too deep into my whole theory about why I think John Mayer is underrated. But I will say that if you listen to Room for Squares, it's amazing how much contemporary indie rock sounds like that record. Like there's a lot of critically acclaimed indie singer-songwriters that sound like John Mayer in 2001. Like the gap Mm. between, say... Phoebe Bridgers and John Mayer is a lot mm. smaller than I think people who are skeptical of John Mayer would ever acknowledge. Uh, mm. Not just in terms of the sound, but also like the lyrical perspective. Obviously, he's a guy and not a young woman, but there are similarities in terms of writing from like a wry, somewhat humorous, but also sad perspective. Mm. Um, you know, people love to claim Sheryl Crow as an influence, but I think John Mayer, you know, I think there were a mm. lot of people who heard his songs on the radio when they were five and it subliminally (laughs) influenced them in some sort of way so yeah room for squares i think is a secretly influential record from 2001 that you can hear strains of in modern music more than maybe people think they can i i i I just can't help but imagine like when you said like oh john you know john mayer is obviously not like a young woman i i can imagine john mayer in like 2003 and 2000 when he was like just saying the dumbest shit in interviews being like you know i like to envision myself as like a 21 year old woman when i wrote why georgia or something like that and yeah i mean back 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 in 2001 like i had a burned copy of uh room for squares from the uh radio station i worked at and you know, it just kind of seemed like no different than, say, like David Gray. It was like a guy making sad, uh, pretty pop songs. Like I liked Why Georgia. I didn't like. I didn't really like uh, No Such Thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like, oh, John uh, John Mayer, kind of like Pete Yorn or something right. like yeah, that. Yeah, or Coldplay in that yeah. same like just making pop rock for the radio. Uh, yeah, and and, I, and that's what I was listening to back then, man. Yeah, and th- and look. You can like because he's he's definitely a cornball, but he can put together a song like those songs hold up. So you know, I would just say toxicity and uh, room for squares put them on the same playlist. Maybe alternate songs. It could be an amazing time. Um, Our next category is most important two thousand one album. Not necessarily the best album or our favorite album, but an album that we feel from this year has had the most impact on music in terms of in terms of influence. You know that you could hear traces of this record in the music that we hear today so what, what's your choice for this well you know i i don't want to say hybrid theory because that would be just kind of reiterating the points you make in the book this isn't happening and that was 2000 too that came out in 2000 yeah but i mean i think it like long tail that's like when it had its most impact right like definitely i remember i remember seeing the uh one step closer video and figured you know, these guys are like power man 5000 or like edema and then they, you know, because that video is just su- all all Lincoln Park videos are like they look like bad sci-fi, like the channel uh, sets. I mean, um, is there an example now of an album being released in one year and then becoming the best-selling album in the following year? I mean, just I don't know, just, man. Just like, like the Glass Animals or something. I know, but I mean, I'm trying to think of if there's like a Taylor Swift record or something that did that because it, to me, this is almost like. You know, it's like the end of the 20th century. Like, like yeah. when you'd have records in the 80s and 90s that would just sell for two years and like and not go away. 
uh, like hybrid theory. I imagine it would be Taylor Swift. I mean, but even her records, I feel like um, they they seem. I'm I'm sure they sell well, but it's not like people are still talking about them sixteen months later. You know, I mean, it, it just seems so incredible to me that a record could have that kind of legs. Uh, mm. As late as 2001. I, I, I mean, I think Adele probably did that with yes, a couple of her yeah. records. Um, but I don't know. It, I mean, it's incredible. And Shaggy, too. We got to shout out Shaggy. Because Shaggy's <laughs> yeah, record let's... came out even earlier in 2000. I think his record came out in August of 2000. And it almost beat Hybrid Theory for the best selling album of 2001. So mm. Shaggy and Linkin Park, just legends, bulletproof <laughs> in 2001. So, so as far as the thing, the album I feel like is most important looking back and uh, and now, and I'd have to say like Daft Punk's Discovery. Now, um, look, people give all sort. I got. I just want to say first and foremost, people give like Pitchfork a lot of shit for like giving like a six eight or something like that for that album. Uh, I looked at Rolling Stone also like panned it even harder. So you know, pull them in there as well. Ben Ratliff actually reviewed that album. Now that I'm looking at it, very. Very important, uh, very important writer. Um, but the reason I think it's like the most important, you know, not just for like what it's done to shape the critical discourse as far as like enjoying pop. Um, I think that Discovery kind of finished the job that Electronica was supposed to do, which is to say to have like electronic music, like techno house or whatever, supplant rock music or just like work alongside pop mu- or rock music as like festival music. Um, Cause I don't think you can really have like Coachella without it. I don't think you can have EDM without it. I don't think you can really have, um, you know, just, there are just so many things that spawn from that record being a hit as opposed to just them being kind of like a chemical brothers sort of thing after homework and still being like limited to the electronic realm. Um, yeah, I, I like lo- looking back on it. Like, it, it's really, I think, impossible to overstate the uh, impact that album had. Um, really, like a long tail impact as well. Um, I, I, I also think it's not. It's similar to the Blueprint, and uh, you know, since I left you, it's now my maybe listen to like once a year. But fuck, man, when I listen to that, it's like, damn, this is like the best album ever. Yeah, and again, and you make a good point about how that was not considered a masterpiece in 2001 i think yeah. I, on the passing job poll it was i think in the 20s or 30s 25 it was 25 yeah. i i which which i think people saw it and i read the old rolling stone review as well like they saw it as a bit of a letdown from homework because they thought it was oh this is too pop you know right, this exactly. is not like they're the detroit uh or chicago house that they were doing before yeah, i think people looked at it as as a little bit cheesy in, in 2001 yeah. whereas yeah, now everyone did <laughs> i you know i think out of any album released in 2001 if you were going to release a song from discovery as a single like it i could see it becoming a hit now like it wouldn't yeah. sound out of place on the radio now in a way that i think every other 2000 album one you know, every other album from this year would sound out of place but daft punk discovery wouldn't and that that, that really speaks Highly of that record. Um, I mean, that's a great answer, um, but I think an even more obvious answer is uh, Rock in the Suburbs by Ben Folds. Uh, <laughs> Yo, the title about. track of that is maybe the worst. Like, I hate that song so much. I had to get a Rock in the Suburbs in, uh, reference into this episode. I'll just say Ben Folds 5, there's some albums of theirs I like. The uh, the unauthorized uh, autobiography of Reinhold Mesner, 
That's an IndyCast Hall of that Famer. That could be an IndyCast Hall of Famer, but yeah, Rock in the Suburbs. Yeah, doesn't he do like, uh, uh, rapping in that song? Yeah, because he's making, you know, he's calling uh, new metal guys suburban white boys, like Ben like ben Folds, the guy from like Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yeah, Ben Folds calling him out. Um, but no, Discovery's a great answer. Mm. The only other album I think that might rival that in terms of importance is the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Because I yeah. think that that record had a really big influence uh, on certainly country music, Americana, just as a genre, which was not a genre people really talked about in 2001. Mm. I mean, that's really something that's evolved uh, to describe artists that fall between rock and country, like a Jason Isbell or a Sturgill Simpson, all of those types of people. I think that you know, coming out of the 90s, which was the era of arena country music, Garth Brooks, Shania Twain, mm-hmm. uh, B- uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, acts like that. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? It created this space uh, for, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, authentic <laughs> and real music, and that being a, mm-hmm. a marketing position that actually people would get into. I mean, we could see that also in what happened later on the, in the decade in indie music uh, with... I think even things like Fleet Foxes and, and Bonnie Bear to a degree, and certainly Mumford and Sons, yeah. uh, very indebted to that. Um, I also feel like in a weird way, even though she's not Americana at all, someone like Adele, who really positioned herself as like the antidote to pop music, like I'm a more authentic version of music. You know, I'm not a person who's just dancing around to, you know, funky beats, that whole thing. Like that was kind of her marketing position and in a weird way i feel like that stems from oh brother where art thou as well it's sort of like in a way if you want to say discovery is the pop uh trailblazer or the pop blueprint for the last 20 years oh brother is like the anti-blueprint to that like the counter programming um so in that way i would say like those two records feel linked in some sort of strange way to me in my mind yeah, I, I sometimes, I mean, I obviously remember that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou came out in 2001. I owned that in college. But to me, it just, it seems like I, I just associate it with the Obama era for some reason. I think just everything about it, like when you talk about like its long tail impact of like Mumford and Sons and Bon Iver and, you know, people wearing like all those like cocktail bars where like people wear like suspenders and fedoras, like that is a direct that is like a direct line to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Someone tweeted about that recently. That, yeah, that whole mm. phenomenon, like where you'd go to a bar and they would like, you know, spend 10 minutes on a drink and it was some yeah. guy in suspenders and a, and a mustache. Um, yeah. And, bu- and by the way, that like, that's like 2012 LA. That still goes on in San Diego. So. <laughs> They're a little behind. Like San Diego is 2012 LA, especially North County. So I have to do a quick asterisk. I, I just looked this up. That album actually came out at the end of 2000. So it's technically oh. a December 2000 record. But again, yeah. let's do the Lincoln Park thing. It, it was a 2001 phenomenon, really. Yeah. So anyway... Maybe the answer is discovery. I think that is the right answer to that question. But we'll do an asterisk next to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou uh, in that conversation. Uh, so finally, we reach the end of our conversation here, our favorite album of 2001. And again, we're not making a culture-wide comment with this. This is just the album that you and I like the most from this year. What's your choice? 
So, yeah, I'm not going to overthink this. It's uh, Bleed, Jimmy Eat World, Bleed American. And, you know, not, not I, I've been open about this, but this is actually the first Jimmy Eat World album I owned. Um, I remember that the title track was the first song uh, or the first single. And uh, I was just like completely fucking blown away by it because I'm like, wait, this is what I want Weezer to actually sound like. And the first time I played that album in, in my car i got a speeding ticket now mind you it's like in charlottesville virginia i was probably going like 30 in a 20 mile per hour zone but this to me is you know it's not my favorite jimmy Eat world record that would be clarity which is my favorite album of all time but as far as like what a pop rock record is like i don't think you can really like they're an emo band but this is not an emo record it's just the perfect constructed perfectly constructed pop rock record where it's like the first three songs are complete bangers. The fourth song is a little more chill than the sixth songs, the ballad, the last songs, the ballad, the sequencing, um, the balance of the record. And I, my favorite part about this is that by the end of the year, um, we could play every song on this album on our radio station. I think except for my sundown, because that song is like super duper slow. Um, it's like, it, it is I just cannot think of a more platonic ideal for a pop rock album. Yeah, I mean, the side one especially, I think, is just really hard to beat. I mean, you've got Bleed American, a praise chorus, the middle, your yeah. house, and then Sweetness at number five. Sweetness yeah. being my favorite Jimmy Eat World song. Same. And this would be my favorite album of theirs, I think, hands down, uh, just because of all the bangers. I mean, it, I mean, what what is this? Was praise chorus on the radio? I feel like it was, but maybe- it was like the it was like the last single. Like this is like the one where they make yeah, and we're gonna date ourselves with this. But eventually, like if you release like four or five singles from an album at that time, the last one would just be kind of oh, we're gonna do a live video for it. You know, it's kind of an afterthought, right. but something just to keep it going. I mean, the the because sweetness was the third single. A praise yes. chorus is the fourth single. Those are the, the two best songs on the record, as far as I'm concerned. So, like, they they saved the two best songs for the third and fourth slot, which is pretty amazing. I mean, obviously, the middle is the big hit. Yeah, that was the second single. Um, mm. But yeah, sweetness of praise chorus, just a great, great songs. Um, so for me, this is a hard choice because, um, you know, you've got Love and Theft by Bob Dylan, which I love. You've got White Blood Cells which I love, Is This It, The Strokes. Those are all very chalky choices, a little yeah. bit boring, I, but I honestly love all three albums. I think they're all timeless classics. It's hard for me to pick any one out of that group, so I'm going to go rogue and pick the album that I, I'm pretty sure I've listened to the most from 2001, which is Isolation Drills by Guided by Voices. Um this is is that going rogue for you though? Well, in terms of like you know picking isolation drills over like love and theft might be construed okay, yeah. as like or over is this it? Um, but uh, you know that is guided by voices going big, making their version of who's next. You know, ditching the the lo-fi sound which they did on the previous record, do the collapse. But I think on isolation drills, they really nail it. Just an incredible big sounding record. Uh, it's like. That album should have made them stars, but they were, you know, Robert Pollard. It was probably, he, I'm sure he was around 50 years old by that time. So, <laughs> he would, actually, no, he would have been like mid 40s at that point. Uh, um, spring chicken. But this also coincides with the era when I was seeing Guided by Voices live a lot. So, this particular lineup 
uh, has always been really close to my heart. Doug Gillard, Tim Tobias, um, everybody in that band at that time. Uh, you know, I was really following them like the Grateful Dead uh, at, at that moment. And they played my favorite show of all time that, that year, December 8th, 2001, at Birdie's wow. in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, just, I'll never see a show that great. Just an amazing, amazing experience. So yeah, all the big masterpieces from that year, you know, we talked about this earlier, like the blueprint. I can't really say that that's that, 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 you know, that's still great. I still think is this, it is great. White blood cells, love and theft discovery. They all hold up. Uh, Mm. but yeah, isolation drills is going to be it for me. So yeah. I think any guy, any guided by voices fans worth their salt would at least put that in the top thirty of guided by voices albums. You know, <laughs> I think it's the best non '90s album that they've made. Uh, but I don't it's know. Got a lot of competition. A lot of competition. <laughs> uh, so that about does it for this episode of uh, IndieCast. We're going to skip recommendation corner this week. We're just going to recommend that. Uh, um, that Ian have a good honeymoon. I hope you have yeah. a good honeymoon, dude, and congratulations to you and 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 the future uh, Mrs. Indycast. And uh, <laughs> good luck with everything. Uh, right. We'll be back next week with more news and reviews and hashing out trends. So long, everybody. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 